Hello and welcome to Core Truth, the podcast show, where we will discover the core truth that controls our experience of life. I'm your host, Mark Follett, and together with my friend, mentor, and author of the book, The Truth of Love and Fear, Rudy Ecker, we will peel back the outer layers of consciousness in order to understand and realize the nature of our perceptions and the beliefs that control the experience of our lives. We will uncover the true nature of consciousness, what drives our personal actions, behavior, and feelings in life, and what really motivates mankind. So we welcome you to join us on a journey of self-discovery, self-realization, and self-awareness to give you a new insight into who you believe you are. Hello and welcome back to Core Truth Podcast Show, where we talk about real life. Mark Follett here with Rudy Eckhart. Today we're going to continue our discussion about relationships. Now we talked on our last episode about the way that we experience ourselves through our relationships and spoke specifically about our spouse and we talked about a couple, a theoretical couple that had some issues, but we didn't really delve into the nature of issues and problems within a relationship. Uh, So we're going to go into that space today. We're going to talk about why things go wrong in a relationship and how that mechanism works and how our personal fears play into into that space. So, uh, welcome back, Rudy. Hello, everyone. Um, uh, do you want to do you want to give us a, a brief introduction to this to this topic today? Well, I think to continue on from last time, um, relationships are never a problem when there are no problems. So, we don't think a lot about what's going on between ourselves and our partner if everything is going well. I mean, we enjoy it and we feel the, um, the pleasure and the, um, the significance of our relationship. But if things go well, then we don't question it or we have nothing to confront or nothing to deal with. It's kind of what people refer to as a honeymoon period almost, isn't it? Well, it happens normally at the beginning of a relationship and everything feels absolutely perfect. Um, you get married and there's a honeymoon period and then there's a fight. Oh, you don't even have to get married. I mean, <laughs> no, but people, I mean, theoretically, yeah, yeah. People people get involved with each other, and then the initial part of the relationship, everything feels perfect. But it's only when issues come to the surface that we start to question the relationship. And um, what we do not realize then that questioning the relationship should be about questioning ourselves. But what we tend to do is question the reason why things are happening. And when we talk about it's an interesting phrase, actually, because it's used a lot by people. You know what happened to me, or you know what, what's happening in my relationship. or And we talk about it happening as if it's an event that came up by itself. It had a power of its own. It came out of nothing. It's a bit like a, um, uh, something manifesting all by itself without any impetus or any push from anywhere. It's like a, bo- and, a bottle drop from the sky on your head. The sky's falling. What's going on? Yeah, it's something like that. (laughs) And so when we talk about things happening, it's really not phrasing it really well. Mm. Because when two people are in a relationship, they both bring themselves into the relationship. And what's probably not well understood is what we bring into the relationship is all our childhood history, all our issues and problems, all our fears and insecurities. Uh, And... I think I, I, I spoke about it earlier when, when two people meet is that they, um, for the first time and they're attracted to each other and want to be with each other, they solely base that on the fact that it must be about love. It must be because you're so sexy and it must be because you're so desirable and that you're so special. 
right? And you make it, it makes you feel good to be around them. That is, of course, the key factor in all of this, that that person makes you feel loved or makes you feel wanted or makes you feel significant or makes you feel special. And the fact that we even used that word that somebody else makes you, mm. right, that is already extremely dangerous. Yes. Yeah? Because being with you makes me feel so good about myself. Yeah, because we, we've spoken before on the show about creating your own reality and that's really getting away from that and saying that, Someone else is creating a sense of happiness in me. A sense of well-being, a sense of security, a sense of safety, mm. uh, a sense of being protected. Because what we don't acknowledge then is that we're actually needy for those things. We're needy for happiness. We're needy to be loved. We're needy to be protected. We're needy to be safe. We're needy for validation, acknowledgement, appreciation. Mm. We're needy for all those things. And here is a partner who appears to be making us feel this way by giving it to us. Fulfilling those needs. Fulfilling those needs. The neediness, yeah. And probably on the other side, there's a partner who is actually similarly affected in that he feels that you make him happy, that you fulfill something in him that is missing within him. Hmm. What this actually is, of course, is the issues that you brought into the relationship out of your childhood Hmm. and that you're not aware of because... They've always been a part of you and you've always assumed that they represented your identity and your personality. It's, it's actually one of the most intriguing factors in, in the work that you do, I find, is that, and this is something I personally experienced, is that you tend to identify yourself and your quirks and the things that make you you. The people, if someone said to you, what identifies you as you, some of the things you would say are actually, they're actually they have a res, uh, an origin in your fears. And when those fears are removed, it's almost like there is actually a different you that is behind that. You, some people actually say, oh, you know, this is, this is how I am in the world. I, I am, uh, I'm hyperactive, I'm this, I'm that. And, and the reason they are those things is actually fear-based, but they identify themselves so strongly with being that way. And so uh, it becomes your inner identity. It becomes part of your identity, yeah. Yeah. So that inner identity, I, I call it, your sense of yourself, mm. in other words, who you believe yourself to be. Yeah. And that is unfortunately most of the time um, made up from many fear-based beliefs mm. about yourself and about the world connected to you. So the way you see the world and the way you relate to the world. So, so meeting, meeting a partner with common interests could be basically uh, meeting a partner with common fears and insecurities. Can be. Hmm. Uh, I, if, I, if they're common, fear-based. Common, common interests are not necessarily the key to this. It's more like, um, like I call it compensating fears. In other words, if you have the fear of being unwanted, then somebody who um, makes you feel wanted, in other words, they, they portray behavior that is focused on you and therefore makes you the center of their attention, which then makes you feel wanted, that kind of behavior, right, uh, will make you feel as if you are now loved, wanted, and accepted, and it takes away your fear that you're unwanted, that you're unlovable. Um, This is probably a good relationship style or type to talk about because it is very common in women and the behavior that guys display is very common in guys and often even taken 
by some guys who are probably a bit more strategic in how they want to meet women and um, what they want that result of the meeting to be. They actually display that kind of behavior deliberately and strategically, consciously, in order to get the end result that they want, probably to sleep with a woman or whatever in that area. Um, so and what I'm talking about is this, is that there are lots of women, um, and please, this is not a sexist um, approach to things. And this is your observation. Anybody who has a moment uh, in their mind that this is somehow a sexist thing, please don't, because it's not. This is an observation through working with people for I your work entire with career. Lots of, I have a lot of clients, and yeah. I have a lot of clients that are women. So when I generalize this, uh, it's there in most women to one degree or another, mm-hmm. right? When it is there in a high degree, then it plays out the way I'm going to de- describe it because to go to the extreme is probably the best way to illustrate it. And that is that that is a woman who <clears throat> who comes from a family. Um, yeah, we'll start there. Comes from a family where the father was disinterested in her. It may even be, and this is often often the case, that her mother and her father were very needy of each other. Mm. And in their neediness of each other and their focus on each other, the father wants the mother more than he wants his children. He wants her attention. He wants her acknowledgement. He wants her focus on him. And the wife being fearful. And you'll, you'll realize later on how this is a repetition of something later <laughs> on. How, how, how there is kind of a genetic trans, uh, transference of these issues, if you like, emotional genetics. Yeah, we have spoken on that before. Yeah, as but well. yeah. it's interesting to keep that in mind when yes. you're listening to all of this. Um, is that the, the wife is then already very needy of the husband and cannot live without him and fears losing him and therefore finds it difficult to pay attention to her children because if she does and she puts a lot of attention on her children, her husband will be jealous Mm -hmm. because he's missing out somehow Mm -hmm. on that emotional attention. So then a daughter can grow up in a family like that, not having the attention of her father because um, her father is only interested in her mother and she can't deliver what her father needs. Um, and then there is the mother who's totally focused on the father because she can't live without him because her sense of value and security depends on him in her mind and therefore she will never leave him. And so therefore also she's more present for her husband than she is for her children. Mm-hmm. And her, because she comes out of a place herself where she was not loved and accepted and is needy for the love of a man, to have a man that loves her... Um, there's always the fear that she will lose that love and she'll be rejected and so on. So her capacity to love is is severely restricted by the fact that she has never been loved herself and is needy for love. So people like that, the father and the mother, who are both needy for love and acceptance, right, uh, will find it very difficult to give it because they are generally receivers rather than givers, Mm. right? So then the daughter grows up with the feeling that, A, her mother is an example for her, that women need men, mm. depend on men, and rely on men for their survival, for their for love, for affection, to feel whole, to feel complete. Um, and the mother's fear of being alone and lonely, right, is transferred to the daughter. Um, 
The daughter also has this need reinforced by the fact that her father is not there to love her. So she feels unlovable to men, unacceptable to men, not good enough for a man, because her father reinforces that by his behavior towards her. And, and no amount of love shown by a man would ever be enough to fill that void in her. Well, you're now going into the future, okay? Right, yeah. So when she goes into a relationship, she already goes in with the expectation that men won't love her, hmm. that men won't accept her. That men are not interested in her. Because they're men all, don't they're all like her. her father. They're all... And yeah. also her mother. And yes, yeah, so her she, mother. She's, she identifies with her mother and she identifies all men as being like her father. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So her father's behavior reinforces and confirms that. Hmm. And so when she goes out or when she meets men, her anticipation is that men won't like her, men won't love her. And if a man, an ordinary man, let's say, a man who is... Um, he's just being himself and just says, oh, I really like you, and doesn't make a fuss about it, it won't be enough for her. It won't be convincing. Mm. Because she starts off with the negative. And to overcome a negative like that, to overcome the, a negative within her that says, I am unlovable, I am unacceptable, I am undesirable to men, right, requires a bit more than him saying, oh, you're nice. Because she would take that as almost a, oh, well, I can't be too nice if if you're not sharing me with more compliments than that? Well, she, she, will only, she needs to be convinced. Mm. And so the type of male that is attracted to her, and I'll explain that later on, and she is attracted to will be what I call a convincer. A convincer, to, in, in, in my particular interpretation, is someone who has the need to convince a woman that she's fantastic, that she's amazing, that she's everything uh, that a man could possibly want. And he does that by paying her an inordinate ordinate amount of attention, mm. by sending her messages 20 times a day, by always asking, uh, wanting to know what she's feeling, where she's at, who she's with, what she's doing right now. You know, And it makes her feel really important, really significant and special. And for the first time, in a long time perhaps, she will trust him. Because she thinks, I am the center of his attention. He wants nobody else but me. Because he says that to her. I always think about you. You're, 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 you're never off my mind. You're the only one I want to be with. You know, there's no other woman in the world for me but you. Some people would call that romantic. Yeah, I know they do. <laughs> and then she will obviously believe that because that's what she wants to believe. Mm. Because she, she already believes that she's not attractive, not desirable to men. To find someone who convinces her that she's the only one, right? Well, this man loves her. And even if she doesn't believe she's lovable, he loves her. Even if she feels she's not wanted by man, he wants her. And that is enough for her. That makes her feel special. So she's the Cinderella uh, come from the ashes and the, the prince has come by to sweep her off her feet. Yeah, there he is on his white horse and right. his white armor. And, and come to save her from the ugly Save her from herself. Yeah. Do you understand? Mm. He's saving her from her fears. Amazing how these folk and fairy tales have got the, their basis in some of this work that we do. But anyway. Yeah. So now we've got to look at him. Mm. So we looked at her and we look at him. And so where does he come from? What is his history? Why has he become the convincer? Why has he become that kind of person? Um, so he comes out of a family with a similarly needy mother, funny enough, as the girl that we just spoke about. 
similarly insecure. So she also feels she's unlovable, unacceptable, etc., right? She's in a relationship with a man who, in the beginning, showered her with his attention and his affection, but then in the end realized that there was no end to her neediness. And no matter how much love he gave her, no matter how much attention he gave her, it was never enough. It's like, it's like pouring water in a bucket with holes in it. Because she's the kind of personality that is actually passive-aggressive, is that she constantly complains. She's never happy. She's never satisfied. It's never enough. And he is the one that lets her down. He's the one that doesn't make her happy enough. He's the one that doesn't satisfy her needs and expectations. So now they have a son. And this son experiences his mother being unhappy, sad, disappointed, needy, feeling insecure, powerless, helpless, unloved, unwanted, unacceptable in respect to men. And he has a father who's basically disconnected from his mother, may even be an alcoholic in some cases, may even be a workaholic. Yeah, escapes in some way. He escapes in some way in order not to be with his wife. You know, he will it, spend time with his friends instead of with his yeah, wife. Yeah, because they might be in, in a, in making things in the shed every every day. Or Whatever it takes to, to be pub. away from the wife. Yeah, it's, right? it's Homer Simpson, I think. So, so, she's, so she feels abandoned and deserted and now looks towards her son to fill the gap. She, he has, he's, he is then the kind of son who's automatically protective of his mother, who wants to be loved by his mother, wants to be accepted by his mother, just like any other boy does. At the same time, his father is not really interested in the son because he was interested in the mother. Now he, he has, um, he's isolated himself because in a way he's still needy of his wife, but he can't live with her and he can't live without her as this old terminology goes, <laughs> right? And so he finds a, a space where he's there but not there. Mm. He's physically there but not emotionally present. Yeah. Okay? So he's not present for his son either. Mm-hmm. So his son still looks for love, acceptance and trust in the unconditional sense as he was born to expect this. And he looks for it with his mother. But his mother has lots of conditions on this. In the first place, she's not all that capable of giving love, particularly unconditionally, because she doesn't know how to love because she can't even love herself. And she has conditions on love. That means that the son becomes almost like a substitute emotional husband to the mother, whereby he has to be everything his mother expects him to be in order to be loved and wanted and accepted by his mother. Now, you've got you've to realize this happens at a very early age. Hmm. And that the boy grows into this without realizing what's actually going on. It's all very subconscious, isn't it? It's all very subconscious and surreptitious. Hmm. Um, and so he, 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 then, um, he then becomes, for his mother, the one thing that makes her feel loved, makes her feel wanted, but not really. So she still complains about the father. He doesn't want to be like his father. He tries to be opposite to his father. It is also very possible that the women we've described, the girl and the mothers, right, uh, also have issues, trust issues with men of other sorts. Uh, it's not possible, actually. It has to be the case. Mm-hmm. So there are emotional trust issues with men. So she continues to have these trust issues with her husband and the son wants to be trusted by his mother. So <clears throat> he represses 
anything that the mother is fearful of in men. So if she's fearful of assertive, dominating and controlling men, then he will suppress within himself his innate capacity to be a man, to be assertive, to be strong, to stand up for himself, mm. because in a way that will... That will um, it will be unacceptable to his mother then. It will make the relationship with his mother difficult because mm-hmm. she can't cope with that. Mm-hmm. So he represses his masculinity in order to be in a relationship with his mother, which makes him then non-confrontational, right, which is really important. But what he does learn, that his mother likes him to make her feel good. So he learns to praise his mother. He learns to say nice things to his mother. He learns to um, make his mother feel loved and wanted by saying all the right things. But his mother is needy of him and controlling of him emotionally. And to get away from that, he learns to tell her one thing and for his own sake and his own survival, do something else. And this is where strategic behaviour is born. Strategic behaviour, yeah, it becomes part of his life. But it's something, as you said, that in this particular example you're giving, because he has grown up from a child into this environment, it's not like it's a strategic behaviour necessarily that's consciously... um, Manifested. Manifested. No, he's He's not 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 thinking, I'm going to deceive you. He's not thinking, I'm going to lie to you. He's not actually conscious and intellectually aware of what is his particular behavior and actions are for and what they are creating. Mm. And so when he grows up to be a man, let's go back first, and in his teenagehood, he's learned that the only way he can have some level of freedom is by telling his mother what she wants to hear rather than what he's doing, right? And so that's often part of the convincer's history, right? That he actually has to deceive his mother, in order to have some freedom and a sense of self of him, uh, um, where he can be more himself uh, by, by actually uh, telling her what she wants to hear and telling her what is acceptable to her. And so <clears throat> that becomes part of his behavior. And so then when he grows up and becomes an adult male and in his young manhood, he approaches girls and automatically because he wants them to like him and to love him and to want him he goes into into strategic behavior that he's learned from his mother which give lots of attention be uh be over attentive over caring over uh and excessively uh complimentary etc etc in order to convince the girl that he wants her and that he loves her or at least he believes that it's love Right, So the girl then gets to hear exactly what she wants to hear. The girl um, wants to be convinced, so there's a convincer convincing her. (laughs) And so both of them seem then, in their own experience of each other, that they're in the ideal relationship. Perfectly suited. Soulmates, probably, in their minds anyway, you know, at that time. Because they feel that need and they fit perfectly with the behaviors the strate- both of them are exhibiting strategic behaviors and the behaviors align with each other because if they clashed then they wouldn't they wouldn't get along as a couple if the strategic behaviors clashed in the initial meeting then they wouldn't probably form a couple well if a girl already loved herself and accepted herself and um did not need the love from a man to convince her that she's attractive and desirable and lovable 
then his behavior would come out for her as being over the top, mm. ridiculous. Yeah. You know, what are you on about? What's wrong with you? Mm. You know, why do you need to talk to me all the time? You don't have to know where I am. You don't have to know where I'm, who I'm with. Mm. You don't have to know who I'm talking to. Right? So there is an aspect about the convincer that's quite controlling. Mm. Because as much as he uses his convincing behavior and his over-attentive behavior to get the girl, so to speak, he's also fearful of losing her. Mm. And there's a lot of... Um, because he has to jump through these hoops to convince her that, that he is the right person for her, there's a fear in him that he's not lovable, that he's not acceptable because of the fact that he has to go through this behavior in order to get his mother to love him. So he's living with this fear that if he puts a foot wrong with his new girlfriend or uh, with his mother, then he's going to be cast out and, and not acceptable to them. Because the mother's love is... Them. The mother needs love. So he's always been in the process of giving love to get love. Yeah. Do you understand? Yeah. But if he puts a foot wrong, either with his mother or with his new girlfriend, then he could lose them. He could lose their, their love. Yeah, so he becomes controlling. Yeah. So he becomes envious of her friendships. If she's got male friends or even female friends, he becomes envious of the time he's, he, she spends with them. He's envious of the emotional intimacy she, she has. I mean, the closeness that she has with other people mm. makes him feel that he's emotionally excluded out of some of her thoughts and some of her feelings and some of her intimate knowledge, if you like. He wants to know everything about her history, who she's been with, how many boyfriends she had, what she did with them. That could go as extreme as that. But it might be even as simple as jealousy over her favorite pet cat or something, you know. Well, you, you give that cat more attention than you give me, you know. It can be, <laughs> but, but it's usually more that he tries to isolate her, mm. that he tries to isolate her from her friends, that he all of a sudden says, you know, that friend of yours, sometimes I think... You know, she's not really being honest with you. He will try and find flaws and illustrate them to her in order to turn her off her friends, make her distrust her friends and spend less time with them. He will, he will um, uh, exclude himself from uh, situations where there are um, parties or get-togethers where she wants to get together with her friends and him, and he'll say, oh, no, you know, your friends don't really like me, or something of that nature, where he turns himself into the victim of her friends, and that to make her come to his rescue and turn her against her friends for victimizing him, for mm -hmm. instance. There's all these little ploys that that personality will put into place in order to make her exclusively his and, and isolate her from her environment. This is extreme. Mm. <clears throat> so there going, are lesser versions of this, but this is the extreme version. So going back where we started the episode, the purpose of the episode was to talk about where relationships start to break down. And I think we're just now just talking about how <clears throat> I mean, you've given a really good picture of the background of this particular couple. But in more general terms now, there's, <clears throat> the, there's the honeymoon period at the start of a relationship where the strategic behaviors are a great match and your soulmates, as you yeah. said. And then whatever those behaviours are, you're even a really good example there, but we're talking about all couples that have fears and insecurities. Well, if, if, if we just follow through, excuse me, <coughs> if, you, if we just follow through with this, then, then what happens kind of between the two of them is this. His 
need to control her to satisfy his own fears and insecurities becomes her sense of being restricted and confined and um, made to feel uncomfortable about what she's already secure with. And so she starts to feel restricted and confined by him, limited. She, 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 she gets to feel criticized and judged because he's trying to control her. And so dissatisfaction creeps in on her side. His dissatisfaction is already kind of there because he, he's not totally sure of her. For him to be sure of her, she would have to live in a box. Mm. And the box has to be carried around by him. Mm. Although it's the only way he can be sure of her. Um, so generally... It sounds like we're then entering into a criminal mm. behavior uh, area, which is probably born out of the same fears, but a more extreme version. Well, let's, let's, if, if, if you say this, right, I can take it to another level. Yeah, just imagine that the, that the kind of control that the man is trying to exercise over the woman, the boy over the girl, that she frustrates him, that she says things like, I'm not going to give up my friends for you. You're being really difficult. Um, so she's trying to protest. Okay, so there's a level of assertiveness in her that's enough that she feels secure that she can start to protest and frustrate his control. As he gets more frustrated, he will become more abusive. And as he becomes more abusive, his tendency to go towards violence becomes greater and greater. Mm. And so his sense of the, the sense of powerlessness that he then experiences, yeah, because he's got a fairly natural, aggressive approach to things, the sense of powerlessness that he experiences goes to a level whereby he may actually hit her and become violent, which then comes into the area of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. And so again, then, again, we're talking about extremes, and most relationships just break up before they ever get to that point, right? Exactly, but domestic violence is an extreme. Yes, obviously. Yeah, yeah. we were already talking about an extreme case with two people, but then we're talking about even a greater, a further, ex- extreme. A further extreme of that you case know? where the male tries to dominate the situation and doesn't get his will, his 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 sense of control that he needs to satisfy his fears and insecurities. He doesn't get that to be obeyed to, to listen to, to conform to. And so then he he may resort to violence in order to force her physically into submission mm. and obedience to his particular will, whatever that may be. Mm. Um, these are not, what I'm describing is not a fictitious, uh, it's an example. It is. It's not a fictitious uh, thing that just I am dream, dreamt up or imagined uh, these things exist more than what we would like to think, mm. but they don't always go to physical violence. So what's what would be the more common outcome is probably that each of them would get to a point where they can't put up with the others. The woman can't put up with the controlling behavior of the man and he can't control anymore. So they say, I'm out of this relationship, I'm going somewhere else and they end up having the same experiences another time. It's well, probably like on a... On a day-to-day basis, people are coming in and out of relationships all the time and wondering why they're not getting any satisfaction out of their relationships and they always end after the first couple of months and, you know, that's probably a more common occurrence with people than domestic violence, say. Yeah, well, domestic violence is is relatively common but not 
um, when when people have the propensity for um, when particularly males have the desire to control, right? When there's all other elements introduced like alcohol or drugs, mm. and the um, the safety is off, so to speak, right? Mm. They're more likely to pull the gun and shoot. If you understand what I'm saying, mm. it's a metaphor. It's not. I don't mean that literally, but when they don't have the barriers up in themselves because they've drink, they've drank, or they've taken drugs, or both, right? The, there's a greater likelihood of physical violence. Um, to comment on what your earlier statement is, um, look, this varies. The, this kind of thing happens in a lot of relationships. Um, people don't always break up uh, because of it, because they their fears and insecurities keep them together. The fear <laughs> of being alone overrides the fear of living this life. Um, they put up with it. They complain. They uh, live their separate lives together, if you like. Um, in some relationships, it, it can create um, a constant barrage of emotional abuse, which is like blame, accusations, name-calling, uh, intimidation uh, on an emotional level, uh, which is, for many, just as bad as physical abuse, mm. right? Um, well, the emotional impact is the same. Women, because of their issues, have a great problem walking away from these things. Mm. And often because they are, are seen to be the victims uh, of aggression, uh, are seen to be the, the, vic the, the innocent ones in this scenario, which in fact they're not, uh, which is difficult for them to accept because they, they often see that they didn't do anything, right? They, they didn't... Uh, hit anybody, they didn't abuse anybody, but they are, through their own issues, they attract these relationships and don't realize that they do mm. um, because all they want is to be loved, all they want is somewhere to be safe, all they want, but it is not enough. Like I say, it's not enough. It's not right to want that when you should be providing this for yourself. Mm. Nobody can create your inner emotional security but you. And so if you have, if you believe you're unlovable and you believe you're unacceptable and you believe you're powerless in the world and you believe you're helpless in the world because it's what your mother taught you and what your father confirmed, then it's something you need to resolve within yourself because no other person can give you that. And so to, to walk away as the innocent victim doesn't serve you and doesn't solve your problem, it doesn't solve your problems or resolve the, um, uh, the potential that you will repeat this. Because it's the neediness that has attracted this into your life in the first place. The neediness, the insecurities, the fear, the powerlessness, all that's made, all that makes you look for a male who will take care of you. Mm. And so you look for a protective, strong, assertive male, right? Mm. And your, your perception altered by your fears will think that this is some, somebody like a convincer that I've earlier described as to be that person, mm. somebody who convinces you that he will be there for you, protect you and save you. Because the, right? the nice guy that you met um, just before you met the convincer didn't shower you enough with praise and affection, so you dismissed You didn't and... see him as a strong person. Yeah. Because yeah. he didn't have any need to portray himself that way. Mm. Mm. I, I want to go back to the man in our story because 
one thing that you mentioned is obviously he, growing up as a boy, would have suppressed his natural aggression <clears throat> in the interactions with his mother because she would have, she yeah. would not have accepted that behaviour. And then on the other hand, we've got a man who the same boy who grows up to be a man becoming aggressive. So I'm just interested to understand how that can flip in someone from is it when they don't when they feel that they're losing control then that fear actually creates that aggression and they and the it overwhelms essentially that that the, the the fear of being rejected and abandoned can can make him aggressive mm. and that will yeah. overwhelm his um uh, or override his sense that he shouldn't be aggressive because yeah. he wouldn't be accepted on that basis yeah one one thing typical about the aggressor is that that always always good talkers oh sorry about the convincer i'm sorry that yeah, was wrong the convincer the, the the convincer the convincer is always a good talker it is a typical characteristics that they're great communicators mm. and often in jobs that require good communication like sales and because they're the kind of people that that um need communication in order to get acceptance in order to get acknowledgement and validation and they are, are very good at it and so in an if there, if a, a man like that is in a relationship with a woman and she has um, a complaint or a disagreement or um, bring something up that is an issue for her he will be very cleverly in his um, clever in his explanations and in his justifications to show and prove to her that she is that that her particular argument has no foundation or issue has no foundation and that he's not to blame or that he's totally justified or he will he will give reasons and causes which will convince her that he's right and she is wrong and so the the insecurity of the woman plays a big part in this because she has no retort for that she doesn't have the capacity to challenge that. And so um, she's at a disadvantage, if you like, um, because of that. But that disadvantage will not be resolved by treating her as a victim. Mm. Or, she, or, or by ending the relationship. It's, ending the relationship doesn't help it either. It just, it just to get her away from a place of abuse, whether it's physical or emotional, does not resolve the issue within her mm. or within him. Right, understand that he is just as dysfunctional, if you want to put it that way, as the woman is in 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 her relationship with herself. He's dysfunctional in his relationship with his self. He's totally distorted in his perception of what women are all about mm. and what women need and want and who he is in respect to women, as she is in the same way and similarly distorted in her perception of herself and men. So, so what's the likely outcome for these people? So, say this, say this couple get to the point where she feels like she's being too controlled. She says, "I'm leaving you because this is this environment." She knows the environment's not healthy. She can't wear what she wants and do what she wants, and she leaves. She should leave. Yeah. She should leave, right? But does that solve the problem? What's going to happen in the next relationship? I mean, he's he's then going to go off and and probably repeat the exact same well, you know, over the top behaviour to another woman. And that other woman will be equally as needy, and this woman is going to go and find another man that exhibits the same behaviour. Yeah, not not necessarily identical because um, the um, it's it's likely that the male will always look for a powerless 
needy woman, mm-hmm. right? That is very likely. The woman, however, can find different versions of the convincer. So the convincer comes in different versions. So we just about talked about one version. Yeah. There is the passive version, which is basically a convincer who uses guilt and uh, being the victim himself uh, as a means to um, to lock the woman in to his life and make her feel guilty about how he feels. Um, she would pity him. She would pity him and try to, and then uh, compromise her life and her existence in order to not feel guilty of being the one that hurts him and upsets him. Because on another level, he's everything for her, if you know what I mean. Mm. Uh, he, he could display dutiful behavior um, uh, in terms of being the provider and being all that sort of stuff um, and provide for, for her on a financial level. But on an emotional level, he's the needy victim, so to speak, mm. that controls her through guilt. So she could go from one to the other. She's no better off. I suppose there's a third option is that she realizes that the relationships she's having are all one of those two, and she opts out of relationships altogether. altogether. Yeah, and just has casual relationships Yeah, um, because and she wants the sex to satisfy her. Her physical needs. So in that, in that case, <coughs> you're almost getting to the point where you trade off and you say, well, loneliness is is better than these relationships that yeah. I'm that I'm getting myself. And that is not unusual either. Yeah. yeah. And, and either way, all of those three scenarios sound terrible. Actually, none of them are real resolution. No. I mean, the real resolution is 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 to do the work that is necessary for you to change the beliefs that you have by letting go of the fears that you have. Mm. And so the fears in terms of the beliefs that you're, say, unlovable or believe that you're unlikable, unattractive, not good enough, uninteresting, um, of no consequence, that your life doesn't matter, all those things you need to let go of in order for you to become a person who does love themselves, who do believe they matter, who has self-worth, who um, feels positive about the future and positive about life and has the capacity to assert herself and be the woman you're always meant to be. Right? You, you don't become the woman you're meant to be by uh, um, adopting a whole set of behaviors or entering a particular career and becoming the boss or uh, achieving a certain goal. Mm. That does not change that. Yeah, so the behaviors and the things you do are not as important as who you are. We're talking about who you are. So we're talking about beingness rather than doingness. Mm-hmm. And this is a huge distinction that is not realized as much as it should be. It's, it's your own beingness that is at stake here. Doingness is something anybody can. Uh, giving somebody the, the advice to turn the bottle top left instead of right to get it off the bottle is changing somebody's doingness. But boy, it doesn't change who they are. Mm-hmm. Who just gets them to get the bottle, the top of the bottle. Well, I guess in the case that we're talking about, this woman's friends might say, well, instead of going to nightclubs to find men, you should go to different locations to find men. And yeah, or different environments. Different environments or, or try a, a, a phone app or try a computer app because they, they screen the men first before they put it. You know, it, changing, what you, changing the way that she meets men is not, going, is not going to change her. the men that she's going to meet because of the way she is. She will still be attracted to a specific type of man because mm. she hasn't changed. Mm. 
and people run around and looking for the perfect one, right? There is no perfect one. What happens consistently that each individual meets the perfect one all the time? And let me explain that. You meet the perfect man or the perfect woman in your life at any time because the person you will pick will fit you, will fit your issues, will fit your problems, will fit your approach to life, who you are, your inner identity. You will automatically do that because you can't do it any other way. Mm. So you always will find someone who complement, who's complementary to your fears and insecurities. Who's perfect for you. Who is then actually, in inverted commas, perfect for you, mm. but actually not. Well, on another level, they are perfect for you because they provide you with a mirror to be able to experience self-change if you are working on yourself in that way. And if you could recognize it as being a mirror, yes. which is not what yeah, that's the not, average person yeah, realizes. The people we're talking about are not in that space. But um, it brings up an interesting point, something that you and I were talking about earlier. And this is more for people that have probably come to that awareness that they do create their own experiences. Um, is that it was one thing to to know or to believe that you know that you create your own experience. If a woman was to put all of her thought and all of her, her conscious intent towards finding this perfect Prince Charming man, it's not you know, somehow going to materialize in her life while she has these fears and insecurities that sit in the background. The idea of manifesting your own reality or creating your own experiences is sabotaged by these fear lenses that you that you walk around with because she might be visualizing this perfect man coming into her life, um, but all she can visualize is the person that fits those fears and insecurities anyway. Which is actually quite evident if you get somebody to write out what is your ideal man. Mm. Because most of the time, the things that people write down actually reflect their own fears and insecurities. <laughs> That'd be an interesting experiment. Yeah. Oh, well, I've done it many mm. times. Mm. And, and it's very interesting when you show people that the things that they want in their partner are the things that are missing within themselves or that they can't come to, mm. right? So... If they need security, it's because they can't create their own security. If they need uh, someone to entertain them, it's because they don't know how to entertain themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, if they want some, somebody to, to make their life exciting, it's because they're, they're boring people themselves yeah. and they don't know how to create boring. They, they want someone exciting, yeah. exciting and spontaneous who's yeah. going to do crazy things. And if things. they want somebody who, who knows how to love them, right, it's because they don't love themselves. Mm. And so... And so the um, the notion here um, of of finding the perfect partner is something that should be totally abandoned because it is totally pointless. And so I might I might put a knife through romance by saying this, <laughs> but I'm actually not. I'm actually putting up a, a, a epitaph for reality because the fact that we live in all these illusions, right? and don't want to live into the reality of it all, which is the reality of our own beingness, right, is what distorts uh, our needs and expectations and has us live lives that are basically unfulfilled and basically unhappy and disappointing is because we refuse to see what the reality of life is. And we need to accept that we are the creators of our own reality. We do this 24 hours a day. We do it in every breath. There's not a moment where you're not creating your own reality. It's not something you can switch off or on, <laughs> all right? It's there all the time, right? You may think that you're only doing it when you consciously have an intent, but it's not the case. Mm. It's not the case. It's, it's, it's something you do constantly 
and inevitably. It's part of the way of being. It's the way that the world actually exists. Because if we didn't, there wouldn't be interactions, there wouldn't be conflict, there wouldn't be resolution. Those things wouldn't exist without us creating it. No, we, 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 our own sense of being, and then our interaction with other people who have their own sense of being, creates a, a sense of beingness that otherwise wouldn't exist. And we've spoken about this before. Mm. And if you, if you existed in, <clears throat> in isolation of everything, of any outside stimulus, you'd probably feel as if you didn't exist. You'd probably fall into some inner space where there was just you. It's like an experience deprivation tank. Yeah. Where, where you don't exactly. have, and we don't have any experience, therefore you're not even sure that you exist. You're not sure where your edges are. You're not sure well, where, what where you, your experiences well, start and finish. You become your body in many ways mm. and your thoughts. You start to hear only the beat of your heart and you start hearing the blood coursing through your veins. You start feeling the life of your body and it becomes the sensation that defines you. And so you become your body and you become your mind. And deprived of this long enough, um, for some people this is an absolute torture. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Or an absolute nightmare. But the, to to be totally isolated could, particularly you have issues of abandonment and being deserted. In that case, you probably, you know, you go close to insanity because you don't know how to, how to deal with that. How to be, just, just be yourself. Yeah. How be to, with yourself. How to just be and just be peaceful yeah. with being, right? Now, now, going back to putting a knife through romance, uh, probably you're putting a knife through um, Hallmark card romance or, or maybe through movie romance, but surely true romance or true romantic uh, relationships can only be found where there is a, an unconditional love and acceptance between the as partners. As much as that we can muster that, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. in terms of the extremes that we're talking about today, the couple that we're talking about, that is able to be resolved. That particular issue you're talking about where a woman is very needy of the man's love and he tries to shower her with love and can't give enough and he gets frustrated and yeah. she ends up feeling control, that situation is actually solvable and then they would actually be able to coexist if they both worked on themselves and got rid of those fears and insecurities. They could coexist in a relationship without those fears and insecurities and that would be far more romantic than being the, controlled or... By working, by, by living life through issues. But, because yeah. that's what they actually do. They live life, their relationship is an issue-bound relationship. Mm. And they live life through the issues, but they think it's normal because they've always lived like that. Mm. Uh, the, the, the situation, as you put it, is actually resolvable only by resolving the, the issues within each individual. Yes. In the individual way. So it's not about resolving... The relationship in the sense of the interactivity between the two people, which is what relationship counsellors try to do. Mm. Um, the only real resolution lies in each individual resolving their own inner issues. Mm. And by resolving their inner issues and changing the sense of who they are, by letting go of the belief systems that were there before, uh, the negative belief systems that supported its negative behavior, strategic behavior that both of them had. Then, after all that has gone, if they're still interested in each other, yeah, there's a relationship possible. 
But that would be true romance in that relationship. But that would be truly loving someone. Loving someone, yeah. For, yeah. for who they innately are. You know, need needs to be absent. Mm. The kind of need that we are talking about. Yeah. You know, there, there are logical and consequential needs. Like if a woman is married to a man and she has a baby, then she needs support. She needs to be looked after. She needs, she needs the space in which she can raise the baby, in which um, she is um, safe to do so because the baby needs the mother's love and needs the father's care. And so in that relationship, there is a certain need that the child has, that the mother has <clears throat> with a man needs to take responsibility. Hmm. Um, but he wouldn't see that as a burden. I think that's the difference. Is the, you hope he wouldn't. Well, I, I, I guess I'm saying that in, a, in an unconditional... No, thing. no, that would be logical. That would just be a logical consequence. Yeah, yeah. Because be. it's a logical part of our life. It's a, it's, a, it's a natural part of our being to be a father, to be a mother. Hmm. But that's, that's the origin of our, of our beingness, you know what I mean? Uh, men and women both have the capacity to be fathers and mothers, but also to the capacity to fulfill their own aspirations and desires. And there should be room for all of that. Yeah. You know, but we don't live in a society that functions that way. Right? I, I, have, I actually think, you know, as a, as a father myself, that my responsibility is to bring children into this world that can live on an unconditional basis. In other words, they can interact with other people, with us as their parents, with each other, I've got two sons with, with each other, uh, with their school friends, with their eventual partners, and then with their children, with an unconditional love uh, as the basis for what they do. Now, I know that fear is always present in something that is constantly going to be coming up, but there is a difference between living in fear all the time and basically all having all of your events in your life bound around that fear and having it as something you see objectively that is part of this mirror system whereby events you see are negative, therefore it's a mirror for you to work through some of your issues. You see it as an objective thing. So the way I'm bringing my children up is in that world where fear is not a driving force behind everything that you do. It's something that's seen as uh, a way, like a, almost a beacon for what needs to be worked on in your life. And, and I think that's our responsibility as, as parents to yeah. try and bring our children up in an unconditional love world. I'm going to give a little twist to your, to your, to your little, to your perception here, but a little twist in the sense that um, when consciousness, anyone's consciousness, has moved through certain phases where you start to realize what your fears are as distinct to who you really are, hmm. right, and you start. To understand that your fears don't really represent you. You can see them objectively, like I said, yeah. Then once you've moved through a certain level of fears that you have, when fear becomes apparent in your life at some time or another, you'll recognize it as a fear. And you will not necessarily then identify with it as being you, but you'll see it as an aspect of you that you need to deal with. Mm. And so <clears throat> there's a what happens when you start trusting love, acceptance and trust as a part of yourself unconditionally, is that you look at fear with totally different eyes, so you don't identify with it as being you. Hmm. And when you do that, then fears become something you just deal with. You know, you start looking for its origin, you start to look at ways releasing it, you start to look at the way you're holding it within yourself. 
or you're asking yourself why you depend on this fear. Why do you need this fear in your life? Hmm. Right? Just, just. I, I, yeah. I think I think a, a good analogy, and I've heard this used before, um, would be say looking at a, a situation of a your backyard, your garden, and you if you're let's say that um, overgrown weeds are your fears, and you could go into your backyard and you could have you know weeds and overgrown grass and a big mess up to your up to your eyes, up to your head, and you look at the backyard and you you know you don't even know where to start, you don't know where you exist. This is this is your this is your reality that you created. Whereas if you've basically chopped, you know, you've, you've spent months and months getting the garden just how you like it and, and a little weed pops up, you can go over and go, oh, I've got an amazing garden, I've got one weed. And you just, just pop that weed out or you work on that particular mm. issue until you get rid of it. You re- rehabilitate that part of the garden. You're not having to deal with the whole world of where do I even start? No. Know? No, the weed doesn't define your garden. No. Well, before all the weeds defined your garden, yeah, because you, your garden was a full of weeds. It was right? just, it was just a, a garden yeah. full of weeds and mess. Yeah. yeah, so we didn't see it as a garden anymore. No, it wasn't a garden, that's right. <laughs> or just right. a dirty backyard. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's a good analogy. It's, it's um, you know, relationships, I mean, there's so many different variations on this. We just talked about one thing, and we can break this down uh, to many different elements to do with um, like some more basic fears, like the fear of being unlovable, the fear of being unacceptable, so so fundamental, uh, trust issues. Then we can talk about um, fear of failure, fear of being successful, um, the fear of being strong and powerful, the, the, um, the reasons for powerlessness and helplessness and insecurity, um, the believing that you're less than others, that you're never enough, um, that you have no control over your life. There's so, so many different elements that we can discuss and probably will over time, but I think I want the listeners to know that obviously the, the relationships have a much broader issue base than the one we just discussed. Yeah, of course. Right? That was an example. That was just an example. Yeah. And that there are many more things that uh, can be addressed and I hope to be able to address in these talks to make the listeners aware of how it might relate to them mm. and how they might be able to start looking at resolving it or at least take responsibility for it. Um, yeah. The only person like in this relationship, just let me say this, is that <clears throat> it all hangs around responsibility. Um, being responsible for your fears and insecurities requires you to be aware of them. To be aware of them, you need to own them. So in other words, when a situation unfolds, we generally only know what we feel. And we respond to what we feel as if our feelings represent reality. So we feel upset, we feel angry, we feel disappointed, we feel let down, we feel powerless, helpless, we feel victimized, we feel criticized and judged. Any of those feelings will for us, in most situations, then determine what is real and what is not. We then will automatically look outside of us for the cause for this, Mm. rather than within. And so in that moment, in that very instant, that we look for an outside force, cause or reason that we can then blame for how we feel, we are not accepting responsibility for what we feel. Mm. And in that moment, we're not accepting responsibility for our own issues. 
fears and insecurities. And probably this is on the coalface, that's where it happens in your life. So if you're, if you're listening and, and, and you have fears and insecurities, I want you to question your feelings. I want you to question your emotions. I want you to question the reason why you have them, in what situations you have them, in, 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 in the context of what, what, which person, what kind of person or what kind of issue does particular emotions come up. So based on relationships, like we're talking about, if you have any issues in your relationship with your partner, then you need to try and understand or come to an awareness of what that is in you that is, that is creating that. Well, first of all, you need to own it. So first of all, yeah. you start by saying to yourself, it's my emotions, my feelings, so I created it. Yeah. That's point one, right? That gives you ne- the power to change it. Well, it gives you the at least the base for asking questions. Yeah. Okay? And asking questions is probably the most important things before change and awareness, mm. right? So, so awareness comes after you ask the right questions, and then change can come after awareness, mm. all right? So, so if, you're, if you then start asking the question, have I felt this before? Do I feel the same feeling every time I'm in this situation or when somebody says this to me or when I have this reaction or response to what I do or say? Um, is this feeling just contain fear? And if you can realize that there's fear related to this feeling, like if you feel like a failure, there's fear of failure. Mm-hmm. Right. If you feel criticized, then you fear being wrong. Mm-hmm. You fear being, um, being inadequate, incompetent, yeah. incapable, stupid, dumb. Right. So it's a fear. If your feeling is related to a fear, then it's definitely based on an illusion that you hold. An illusion being a, 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 a conviction that you hold that isn't real. Mm. It's not real. Yeah. So we should talk about this next time. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think we should enter into a more deeper conversation about that. We can definitely expand on that. Um, yeah, so, I mean, to wrap up today, we, we talked about the uh, the way that conflicts come up in a relationship following an initial attraction period and, and sometimes, and, and in most relationships, what that attraction is initially based on, which is actually quite often fear-based, and especially in the example Rudy gave today, which was quite uh, a visual image. Uh, and I think it was important to understand how sometimes these negative beliefs can all can go down the path of something as extreme as domestic violence when it starts as such an innocent thing uh, in a family that grows up that would seemingly from the outside be normal to a man that can be driven to domestic violence. You can see how just step by step the fear grows and becomes something terrible, right? So it just creates the, everything negative in the world is created through those very humble beginnings of fear in a mother-son relationship, say. When, when the fear becomes extreme, then the reaction to the fear becomes extreme. Mm, mm. And that, that is what um, probably isn't recognized as much as it should be. Mm. And, you know, when we, um, when we can accept that our fears and insecurities are not created by outside sources, but by what we believe within ourselves, then um, we need to also understand that Resolution can only be achieved by changing something within yourself, mm. by dealing with those fears and insecurities that create these extreme emotional responses. Mm. All right. Well, thank you again, Rudy, for your time, and thank you to our listeners. My um, pleasure. We'll see you again in the next episode. We'll continue to talk about relationships over the next few weeks. See you all soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you.